If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're continuing our way through the text this morning. We're looking at the sign of Jonah. If you would, please pick it up with me in verse 38. As is our custom, we're going to read the text, uh, and then we'll pray and we'll ask God to open our hearts and to open our minds and through his spirit to illuminate the text so we can fully grasp everything that is there for us. Before I read the text, I just want to say to you, I have come this morning to preach. Amen? Thank you. Now that's going to become significant as we get into the message. Just want you to know that. Not just making random statements. Sometimes I do. But anyway. Chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a son, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, she will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for your son's preaching. We thank you for the way in which he interacted with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of Israel in his day, Father, as he walked this earth. We thank you for his preaching. And God, as we, your people, draw near to you, as we come into your house, into your presence amongst your people with your children this morning, Father, help us to understand your clear purpose. Your clear purpose, Father, is to speak to each one of us with that still, small voice. Father, help us, Father, to desire to hear you speaking. And help us, Lord, to desire the still, small voice. We pray you would work this morning through your spirit, shine upon the text, and take your word and drive it home into the hearts and the minds of your people. We pray this by the name of Jesus. Amen. At first reading, it would appear to be a case of spiritual schizophrenia. But if you think critically about what is being said... It's actually a man who has prepared his heart to really hear the word of the Lord. In 2 Kings chapter 19, we encounter the prophet Elijah. And if you're familiar with what takes place in the chapter before, in chapter 18, sorry, it's 1 Kings, I, I realized that. 
caught myself. In 1 Kings 19, we encounter the prophet Elijah. And if you're familiar with 1 Kings, you know in the chapter before, he's just had this monumental confrontation with the priests of Baal. They go up on this mountain. They're saying, let's figure out whose God is real. Let's figure out whose God is really the most powerful God. And Elijah says, I'm going to build an altar over here. You guys build an altar over there. I will put a, a slain calf on my altar. You do the same thing on your altar. And then we will call for fire from heaven. If Baal is true, let him send down fire and light your altar on fire. And if God is true, let him send down fire and light my altar on fire. And of course, for those of you who are familiar with the story, they were chanting and dancing around this thing, the priests of Baal, and they couldn't get the god Baal to light their sacrifice on fire. Meanwhile, while they're doing this whole hocus-pocus ritual over around their altar, Elijah is instructing them to dump buckets and gallons and gallons of water on his altar. And while the priests of Baal are crying out to God to light their offering on fire, Elijah begins to make his way down the mountain. Because the one true God sends fire in such fury that it lights Elijah's altar on fire. He sends fire from heaven, and the fire is so intense and so all-consuming that it catches the false priests of Baal up in it as well. Of course, the wicked queen Jezebel, who is presiding over Israel at this time, she doesn't like the fact that her priests have just been burned up in an inferno by the one true God. And she threatens Elijah, saying that she's going to kill him. And Elijah boogies and gets out of town as fast as he possibly can. When you read it, you think to yourself, now that is perplexing because Elijah has just performed an amazing miracle. He's called out to the one true God. He has asked that God to send fire from heaven. God answered his prayer, sent fire from heaven, and lo and behold, at the threatenings of a wicked queen named Jezebel, all of a sudden, he's afraid, and he makes his way out into the desert, to the mountain of Horeb, where the Lord comes to him and says, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Elijah is waiting in this cave on the mountain, and the scriptures record that at first a great wind struck the mountain, shaking the trees, pushing the dirt around, and Elijah didn't go out in the midst of the fierce wind. The text says because he knew that the Lord wasn't in the wind. The next thing that happened was an earthquake struck the mountain, shaking a mountain, shaking the dirt, and Elijah still did not leave his cave to go out and face the Lord because the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. The next thing that struck the mountain was similar to what happened with the priests of Baal. An all-consuming fire fell from heaven, setting the trees on fire, burning the rocks itself, and still Elijah didn't leave his cave to go out before the Lord because the Lord wasn't in the fire. And as Elijah is sitting there in the cave, he hears, as the text says, a very still, small, almost imperceptible whisper. And upon hearing that, Elijah gets up, wraps himself in his prophet's cloak, and leaves his cave to go and stand before the Lord. Now when you read that, you think that 
Elijah is experiencing spiritual schizophrenia on some level because who is he to be afraid of Jezebel when he has just called down fire from heaven? And it is true. He had instructions. He didn't follow those instructions to the T. He departed from his path to go flee into the wilderness. But I think we're too critical of Elijah because Elijah knows what you and I need to know. That just because God performs an overwhelming, supernatural display of power and domination and his authority and his sovereignty over all creation, that is no sure guarantee that he is entirely pleased with you, that he is entirely in your corner, and that you have nothing to worry from him. And so as Elijah makes his way out into the wilderness, you're not encountering a man who's necessarily running for dear life in terror of Jezebel. That's a part of it. But you're encountering a man who is waiting to hear more from the Lord. And here's the difference between Elijah and you and me. Elijah knows not to look for the Lord in overwhelming supernatural displays of power. Which is more than what I could also say for the Pharisees. Jesus is having this conflict with the Pharisees. He's just performed an overwhelming supernatural display of power. He's cast out a demon. The text begins all the way back in verse 36. Jesus makes, in chapter 12, verse 36, he leaves the crowds, the disciples came to him, I'm on the wrong page. My bad. All the way back in verse 22, it says a demon-oppressed man came to him and he casts the demons out. So he's already given them a visible demonstration of his supernatural power and his total authority over spiritual forces of darkness. And this isn't the first miracle he's, he's performed. He has, by this point in the Gospel of Matthew, raised people from the dead, cured leprosy, restored sight to the blind, returned hearing to the deaf, loosened the tongues of the mute. He's cast out demons, he's healed, he's preached. Over and over and over again, he has shown himself to be the Son of God. At a word, he can heal. He casts a demon out of this man. Of course, they accuse him of working by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebul. He says they're illogical, they're prejudiced, they're in danger of committing the unforgivable sin. If they continue on insisting that he's not really who he is, that he is not the Son of God, he says, you will grieve the Holy Spirit, you will harden your hearts, and you will come to a point where God will walk away from trying to convict you, God will walk away from trying to save you, and he will leave you in your sin, and then you will have no hope except to walk down this miserable life to your ultimate doom. Then he calls them names. You brood of vipers. Well, this is the religious holy people. These are the dignified aristocrats of their nation. They're not going to take that sitting down. So he calls them a brood of vipers, and they respond with a simple request. Teacher... We wish to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign. You and I could easily say he's done all kinds of signs. But as far as they're concerned, they're not satisfied with the signs he's done. They want to see something more. Now, they're not oblivious to the fact that he's healing people, that he's raising people from the dead, 
They're not oblivious to any of that. When they ask for a sign, they're asking for some overwhelming display of power. They're asking for some incontrovertible manifestation of divine sovereignty. I'm not entirely sure what they're asking for, and they didn't get specific. If God could have made the sun reverse direction in the sky and go the other way, that may have satisfied them, although I doubt it. If God had called down fire from the heavens right then and there in that moment to burn them all up like he did with the prophets of Baal, that might have satisfied them, but I doubt it. Jesus' response to them is, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He makes a statement, an evil and adulterous generation. Evil I can understand. These are the men that are going to plot to kill him. Adulterous is a little bit more surprising. He makes a statement, you guys are evil and you're adulterous. Now, we understand that they're wicked, so evil, we get that. What exactly is Christ saying when he refers to them as an adulterous generation? Remember, these people are committed to the scriptures. We've got two different groups here. We've got Pharisees and we've got Sadducees. Both groups have a very high view of Scripture, a very high view of Scripture. These are guys that study their Bibles, that know them undoubtedly way better than you and I. I mean, if they were here, they're the kind of guys that could, with their Bibles, talk theological circles all around us. They know it so well. And yet, Jesus' statement about them is that they are an adulterous generation, meaning they're committed to something. They give the impression that they're one with the Word of God, that they are the Lord's true people, that they're in a special relationship with the Lord, that they're one with Him. And when Jesus responds to their request for a sign of His power, He calls them adulterous, meaning they ought to be with Him. They ought to be one with the Lord, but they're cheating on Him. They're having to use ungodly language from last week's sermon, an affair. They're having a relationship that is illicit and sinful. They're not being totally true to the Lord. They're pursuing something else. He says that he knows that they are evil, which we understand, and that they are adulterous, meaning they're pursuing an illicit relationship with some other God, not the one true God, based upon their request for a sign. Notice this. He makes a statement. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. It's in the present active indicative. It's the ongoing active. They're constantly hankering, looking, begging, wanting some sort of a sign. He's performed all kinds of signs, but that's not good enough for them. They're wanting something totally spectacular. Something that can just be written across the skies. And his statement is, the fact that you are seeking for that, the fact that you are hankering after that, that you are constantly wanting to see that, shows that you're not really true to the one that you ought to be committed to. They'll get a sign in due time. The sign of Jonah. Now, if you're a Pharisee, and he references Jonah, you know what he's talking about. You know your Bible. If you're in the crowd this day and you're a Sadducee and he references Jonah, again, you know what he's talking about because you know your Bible. Both groups, be it Pharisees or Sadducees, would have held Jonah 
to be a failed excuse for a prophet. They both had a high view of Scripture. The Pharisees, though, didn't have a high enough view of Scripture, and neither did the Sadducees. The Pharisees would have taken the entire Old Testament, all the books that you and I would, have, would accept as Old Testament books, they would have embraced all of those. They would have understood it as all being canonical, as all being a part of the Scriptures. The Sadducees are a little bit different. They regard only the Torah as authoritative, only the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Those are the only ones that they accept. They value all the rest of the Scriptures. They value the rest of the Old Testament. They think that it's helpful, that it's instructive, and all of that good stuff. They understand, though, that only the Torah is to be authoritative. In terms of what we would use, the words we would use to describe their views of Scriptures today, we would say that the Pharisees valued the Scriptures but did not consider the Scriptures to be sufficient. In other words, they liked the book, they thought the book was good, they embraced it, it taught a lot of good things, but we need to add some rules and some regulations and some additional practices and habits on top of the book in order to make sure that we're honoring it totally. They don't think the scriptures are sufficient for totally guiding our lives. So they like the scriptures, they have a high view of scriptures, but it's not high enough when you think you have to add rules and regulations to it. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they reject you know, a good chunk of the Old Testament, don't believe it's canonical, don't believe it's part of the Bible. Their perspective is the scriptures are just these five books. And while they accept those five books as authoritative and from God, while they have a high view of those five books, they don't think that those five books are entirely clear. The Sadducees don't necessarily believe in what we refer to as the perspicuity of Scripture in terms of its ability to touch on things and to explain things and to be clearly understood by man. Part of the problem is they've rejected so much of the scriptures. We understand it's a cohesive whole that they all go together as one. Because they've rejected so much of it and they've only got these five books that they're dealing with, they think that the scriptures don't really touch on topics like angels or demons or even the resurrection. Again, they have a high view of scripture, but it's not high enough. They're committed to the Lord. But they're involved in an adulterous relationship because they're not as committed as they think they are. And they're really holding to something else. Jesus says, you're going to get your sign. He references Jonah, the sign of Jonah. Why did he choose that? Well, obviously, he's going to be crucified and buried in the ground. And obviously, Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, right? There's a clear parallel. But for both groups, they regard Jonah as a failed prophet. When God called him to go preach, he ran from it. He got on a ship and he went the opposite direction from Nineveh. God spoke to Jonah. He says, go to Nineveh, preach to Nineveh. I want to see Nineveh get saved. I want them to see them come to faith. Jonah said, no way. I hate those Ninevites. I'd rather they die. If I preach to them, they might actually get saved and I don't want that to happen. So I'm on a ship headed the wrong way. 
He's on this ship, and of course, God isn't pleased with that, so he strikes the ship with a hurricane. The ship's being tossed around in the ocean. All the men are freaking out. They're like, what's going on? And Jonah says, man, this is on me, guys. I, I'm the reason this is all happening. If you throw me overboard, the waters will calm down, and you'll be fine. So they're like, oh, okay, and they toss him. You know, they were that terrified. They were going to try anything. So off you go, and sure enough, Jonah falls in the water. Fish comes up, swallows him whole. Wow, it really did work. Cool. And we're going to continue on with our voyage. Meanwhile, Jonah's a goner because he's disobeyed the Lord. He's in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the ocean. He cries out. The Lord says, you're going to go and you're going to be faithful. You're going to do what I tell you to do. He says, okay, sure enough. And the fish spits him out. He goes to Nineveh. He preaches. The city repents. And Jonah is ticked off. And the book closes with Jonah, the same Jonah that just spent three days in the belly of a fish in the bottom of the ocean, on a hill overlooking the city of Nineveh saying, I can't believe these people repented. I am so angry. I knew this was going to happen. I wish they hadn't repented so that they would have all died. So if you're a Pharisee and you're a Sadducee, and I dare say if you're a Christian here at Bridge Baptist Church this morning, you're thinking, this guy was a failed prophet. It's not somebody you look to and you respect. You and I, we read the book of Jonah and we understand there are some deep spiritual truths and that in one sense, God uses Jonah to speak to the people of Nineveh, but in another sense, God uses the life of Jonah and the emotional response of Jonah to continue to speak to you and I today in terms of he clearly had a sinful disposition to the Lord. When Jesus makes the statement to both Pharisees and the Sadducees, he chooses Jonah for two reasons. Number one, it is very direct parallel in terms of what happened to Jonah is going to be happening to Jesus. But number two, Jonah went and preached to some Gentiles. And he makes this statement. Look with me. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Jonah preached a message. He didn't even particularly want to be there preaching that message, but he went and he preached it. It wasn't Jonah that brought the Ninevites to salvation. It was what Jonah said. It was the message that he preached. Through that message, through that preaching, the Ninevites get saved. Jesus' response is, you guys want a sign, but if you are paying attention to what the Bible says, more than a sign, more than some sort of incomprehensible, incontrovertible, dominating display of God's power in the sky, more than that, what you really need is to hear a message preached. What you need more than a sign in the skies is a really good, biblically-based sermon. The men of Nineveh, no denying it. Historically, the city was not wiped off the map, although God threatened to wipe it off the map. Not because of Jonah, because we can see clearly Jonah didn't want to be there in the first place. His heart wasn't what you would say in it. But because of the message that he preached. I am here today to preach a message. 
And my fear and my concern is that sometimes we as Christians, as we go through life, we're always looking for some sort of incontrovertible, undeniable display of power in the skies above. When what God really wants to do is speak to us in a small, still voice. Not Joshua Claycamp speaking to you, but the word of God being preached through Joshua Claycamp. It is not the man. It is the message. Jonah didn't want to be in Nineveh. And to be brutally honest with you guys, there are some Sunday mornings where I wake up and I'm cozy and warm in my bed, and I do not feel like getting out of bed in the morning. I love you. It's just that I have the same struggles that all of us have, and I, I like my bed. I get up, I come to preach. And there are Sundays in which I know very clearly my heart is not totally in it. None of that matters, though, so long as the Word of God is preached, joined by the Spirit of God to produce the fruit that God wants to create in your life. Now, I fully acknowledge and agree with the sentiment that my heart should be right, and I work hard to have a good heart. I do. But regardless of the man, it is not the man who does the work in your soul. It's the word being preached by the man. Not the man, the word. And this is something that we really need to reflect on. Some individuals have the perspective that they can just be a Christian all alone in their home. They can go online, internet. There's all kinds of amazing, phenomenal biblical teachers whose sermons and messages are up on the internet. And some Christians have the perspective that they don't need the church, that they don't need to gather with the assembled congregation before the Lord, that they can just, with their own Bible and their own home, learn everything that they need to learn, get everything out of the Bible that they need to get out of it, and that they can be fine that way. The problem is, if you're really reading the Bible closely, and if you're really observing what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know that that doesn't work because that is not the way that God has ordered things. It is the preaching of God's word that you need. And you need that in a direct and personal contact with a preacher. Some of you are thinking to yourselves right now, where is that in the scriptures? I don't know that I've ever seen that. And I'm glad that you're thinking that question because I am here to preach. And I am here to preach the word of God, which happens to say that you need to hear a preacher preaching the word of God. Where does it say that? The first place we encounter it, don't flip, it's going to be up on the screen. You need to understand that when God brings people to salvation, he does so through preaching. It's two, po two components. One, it's preaching. Two, it's the word of Christ. Paul makes a statement in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, what is Paul preaching? Well, he's preaching the Bible. He's preaching the word of God. But you'll notice in this verse, 
the foolishness of the action preaching, it's a verb, that is the instrument that God uses to bring people to faith. And if you're looking at that verse carefully, it's clear that nobody's wisdom, nobody's intellectual capacity is capable of bringing them to a correct knowledge of God. Nobody's smartness, nobody's IQ, nobody's intelligence, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you can be Einstein, and you're still not going to be smart enough to reason your way to God. Einstein, whom we all accept as the smartest of the smart guys out there, still would need a preacher. Einstein would still need a man with a Bible in his hand if he's going to come to faith. I'm not the first one to say this. The Puritans, they believe this very strongly. John Preston made the comment, there is not a sermon which is heard, but it sets the hearer nearer to heaven or hell. You come to hear somebody in a church preaching from the word of God and it creates a dividing line. We will, none of us who have ever sat in a church or ever heard a preacher preach ever be able ever again to stand before the God of the universe and say, I didn't know. Because you did know. Say, so that's great, Pastor Joshua, but I'm already saved. So once I got saved, I, you know, I went to a summer camp or I went to a, a church service and the guy preached and I gave my, my life to the Lord. Now, in terms of going on and living my Christian life, now I can just do it at home by myself, right? No. Again, the Bible doesn't say that. Faith and knowledge of the truth comes by means of preaching. Strength comes through a man preaching the message of Christ, Romans 16.25. Paul makes the statement, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now Paul is writing a letter, he's writing a letter to the Romans, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these are all wonderful things. Paul makes the statement to the church at Rome, God will strengthen you, he will give you spiritual strength, number one, through the gospel, which is clearly recorded here in the book of Romans. But Paul loses the fact that you don't just need the gospel, you need the preaching of Jesus. It's in the active indicative. It's an ongoing action, meaning every week you need to hear the preaching of Christ in order, as the text makes clear, to strengthen you, to become spiritually strong. He goes on to say, I'm losing my place. The preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. We have something that we can proclaim, that we can listen to, something which is greater than the prophet Jonah, greater than the message that Jonah preached. We have the gospel of Christ. William Ames made the comment, preaching, and he was commenting on this passage, preaching is the ordinance of God, sanctified for the begetting of faith, for the opening of the understanding, for the drawing of the will and the, the affections unto Christ. Preaching is important. Thomas Cartwright made the comment, 
He said that preaching is vitally necessary. He went so far as to say it's necessary above the simple reading of the Bible. He wrote, quote, as the fire stirred gives more heat, so the word, as it were, blown by preaching, flameth more in the hearers than when it is read. Thomas Cartwright's argument was that more than just reading the Bible, more than just going to a Bible study, more than just being involved in a life group, we needed the Word of God to come alive in our souls and that the means that God uses to bring about that flaming into life of the Word is preaching. Preaching. He didn't just come up with that on his own. Again, he was commenting on a particular passage of Scripture Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Paul writing a letter to his protege, Titus, whom he has instructed to put some things in order. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Number one, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. And number two, their knowledge of the truth. Paul is saying, I am a servant of God's people for their faith and for their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time, notice this phrase, manifested in his word through preaching. To make something manifest, to make something clearly seen, to reveal something, to expose it so that we can all observe it. That's what Paul is saying here under the inspiration of the Spirit. He's saying eternal life, faith, and the knowledge of the truth which goes with eternal life. That whole understanding, that whole body of knowledge which is essential to salvation, all of it is made clear, it is revealed, not just through reading the Word, but through hearing the word preached. That's what the Bible is saying. Which means that as I give voice to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, I am doing something incredibly glorious and incredibly profound. Regardless of if my heart is in the right place, regardless of if I have a good attitude about it, regardless of even if I want to have a good attitude about it. Jonah didn't want to go to preach to Nineveh. He didn't want to be there, but he preached, and God saved them through the message he preached. God uses preaching the word of God to bring us to salvation, to take us deeper in our knowledge of the Lord, to strengthen us. By far the greatest quote I have ever heard. Richard Sibbs. You know, when I read this, and it brings clarity to my purpose and very clear understanding to my responsibility with this church. Preaching is the chariot that carries Christ up and down the world. Preaching is the chariot that the Lord rides on. You'll notice Sibs didn't say the preacher. 
didn't say the preacher. He said preaching. Step way back out of the text for a second. Listen to me now. Teacher, we want to see a sign of your indomitable power. I'm going to preach to you instead. That's in effect what Jesus does. I'm going to preach to you. I'm going to reference a guy that you think is a failed prophet. And I'm going to point out to you that Gentiles, people that you are racist against, that you think are inferior to you, they came to salvation because they were willing to receive the message. I took a man onto a ship, into a fish, across some land. He showed up at a city, a wicked city, that I was very tempted to wipe off of the face of the earth. And not the man, but the message that he preached. That brought them to salvation. Pay attention, Pharisees. It's not an indomitable display of power in the sky. It's the small, still whisper of the Lord speaking to you on a Sunday through a sermon. You know, as I reflect on my life, and I'm sure if you'll pause, you'll know this to be true in your life as well. Whenever God has done something monumental in my world, I didn't see it written in the clouds above. The earth didn't split open before me. A little angel popped out and said, hey, this is what you need to do. When I gave my life to Christ, when I chose to be baptized, when I prayed and asked God for direction and wisdom in terms of proposing to my wife, when I surrendered to ministry, and in fact, even coming here to Canada, specifically to Kamloops. Those are all life-altering decisions. And do you know what brought clarity and gave clear direction to how I ought to make those decisions? It was not some overwhelming display of power from God in the skies. It was a sermon. And if I go back and I document those critical decisions in my life, the truth is, half the time, I couldn't tell you the text that was preached. I didn't think to write it down or take good notes. Some of those preachers, I can't even remember their names. The preacher was relevant. Excuse me. The preacher was relevant. The text was critical. I just didn't do a good job writing it down. But it was the sermon that the Spirit used to speak to my heart. God is still calling men to preach for the purposes of using preaching to be his chariot. Mr. Savage and Mr. Blindberg, he's not in here. Strive to preach the word. Strive to be faithful to the task. God is still calling men to a job that the world thinks is stupid. It's asinine. The guy's going to get up and for 45, 55, 65 minutes. <laughs> we wish he'd be quiet. He's going to keep going. He's going to preach. And you know what's even more amazing is that there are people who love the Lord who will listen. The whole world wants to there to be some sort of undeniable evidence, some sort of visible demonstration in the sky that proves that God is there. 
there is a sky, there is a sun, and we could say all day long that the simple fact that we exist is evidence of the fact that there's a creator who created us. Never mind all that. It's not good enough for your average Joe, but do you know what? The Lord's people, they don't want to see the indomitable display of power. They prefer the intimacy of the still, small voice. They want him to be a father. They want him to be close. And so the Lord's people want to hear preaching. And honestly, you do too. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, he can speak to you one of two ways. Almost every time, not every time, but almost every time, you encounter the Lord working some indomitable display of power, some all-consuming work of miraculous sovereignty, almost every single time, it's in judgment. And he prefers to come to you and to speak to you as his child. Maybe you say, no, I don't want to listen. No, I don't want to hear. No, if I'm going to give you the time of day, I need to see more from you in terms of your power what do you really expect him to do to get your attention? I uh, was raised in an old school family that believed in spanking. And if my father came to me and said, son, I don't like the fact that you're beating up on your younger brother. I want you to stop it. And he came and he talked to me. And I were to respond to him, this never happened, but let's just say hypothetically, I were to respond to him and say, hey, old man, who are you? I need to see some proof that you actually have authority over my life before I'm going to give you the time of day. Like I said, I come from an old school family. My dad would start to roll up his sleeves and say, okay, I'll give you some evidence. <laughs> so thank God that God prefers to speak to us. And the real issue, ladies and gentlemen, is do we prefer the small, still voice to the indomitable display of power? Look at the next verse. Look at what he says. Verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation that is confronted with the preaching of Jesus himself. She will condemn this generation. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This is recorded in the Old Testament. It's, she is understood to be the queen of Sheba. If you're not familiar with where Sheba is, Sheba is in present, near, close by what is present day Yemen. It's on the eastern coast of Africa, way south. She traveled all across the continent of Africa, all the way up into the Middle East, into Palestine, into Jerusalem, to hear Solomon preach. Jonah was taken to Nineveh to preach to Nineveh. The next illustration to prove his point that Jesus pulls out is that the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, traveled across an entire African continent in a day and age in which there weren't automobiles, there wasn't air conditioning, there wasn't planes or trains, there was no quick and convenient mode of travel. She did it either on the back of a camel, on the back of a horse or a donkey. She went a long distance to hear Solomon's wisdom. And you'll notice, again, Jesus speaking to people who consider themselves spiritually elite, the true people of God, utilizes a Gentile as an example of their failure. She was willing to travel 
an enormous distance to hear Solomon. Solomon, who also, if we can be honest, was in some measure a failed king. 700 wives, 300 concubines, 1,000 women total could sleep with a different woman every night of the week and go almost four years before he saw the same woman a second time. A man who so embraced through political liaisons various different gods of surrounding nations that his kingdom became polluted with idolatry, not purified. A king who was so harsh and so heavy with taxations and building programs that he foisted upon his people that at his death the nation rise up and says to his son, you going to be like your old man because we are tired of building things. And as a result, the kingdom divided in civil war. Again, it's not the man. It's the message. The queen of the south traveled from the ends of the earth all the way across the African continent in order to hear. She went to great lengths, literally, to hear the word of God. Listen, Pharisees, Jesus is right here in front of your face. You want a sign, you want a display, and he is preaching to you. Are you exercising yourself in the way that the queen of the south did in order to receive it? If it is true, and it is, that God still raises up men to preach and to teach the word of God, if it is true, and it is according to the word of God, that preaching is the means that he utilizes in order to strengthen your faith, to bring you to faith, to take you deeper in your walk with God, then what do you suppose his expectation is for the church to hear that message? What do you suppose his expectation is if he wants to work through a preacher for his people to be willing to listen? Now, there are all a number of things that get in the way. Kids wake up and they're, if you're my daughter, you've snuck chewing gum into your bed at night and chewed it and then, you know, hocked it out as you're snoring or whatever, and it's like all tangled up in your hair. And, and poor Shanti and poor me, mostly Shanti, I'll be honest. Um, we're like, oh, man, we're going to be late for church because we got to, like, you know, pick this thing out, sort of surgically scissor in such a way that it's not horrific, you know. And, um, by the time you go through all of that, you get them bathed, you get them dressed, you get them fed, you get them in the car, you get them to church. There's a little bit of stress there. And we're a young church, like, we all have that. I'm not, I just pulled that example out just because I totally understand where 99% of us are at. Kids can be a challenge. And so we're prone to get to church not in the best frame of mind to hear the word of God. If you're frustrated because your children presented you with some problems, Come to church where everybody's all smile, and everybody's happy, and you're like, blood is pulsing and your veins popping out of your head, and you're just like, oh my God. And then you're hoping that people don't notice that you're stressing out and that your kids are really, you know, making you homicidal, you know. Your fear over what people are going to think of you, your stress over the difficulties that your children are presenting in your life. 
All of that is going to lead to distraction. All of that is going to keep you from hearing the word of God. And so we got to be diligent, guys, to plan ahead. My wife and I get up really early on a Sunday morning to the best of our ability, be prepared for every possible contingency. For Miss Bonnie and others of you that have taught Olivia, uh, Olivia in Sunday school, you understand every possible contingency. <laughs> yeah. We just don't know what's going to happen. And uh, we're here on time. Some Sundays we're stressed still. But for the most part, if you can get up early enough, if you can be disciplined enough to allow yourself enough space to deal with the unexpected, such as frozen ice on the roads, snowfall, children screaming, things happening, if you can give yourself the space to deal with those things, you'll be less stressed and you'll come to church more prepared to receive what the Lord is trying to say. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, traveled for months and months and months to hear a sermon. The time and the preparation and the expense that is involved in her effort to go across the entire continent of Africa in order to hear a message so that she can be saved and go deeper in her faith is a pointed illustration to you and me in terms of the preparation we need to put in to getting ready to hearing the preaching of God's word on a Sunday morning. So do you stay up late on Saturday nights watching reruns of The Walking Dead or Breaking Bad? Do you stay up late on Saturday nights talking with your spouse? Are you a part of the younger group? Maybe TRU University student, you go out with your friends and go see movies and things of this nature on Friday night, uh, Saturday night. Maybe you need to shift those things to Friday night and go to bed early on a Saturday night. I know that's blasphemy, right? Like, that's crazy. This is our weekend time, right? More important for you than having fun with your friends is hearing the word of the Lord, hearing the preaching of God's message. Jesus says to these guys, you ask for a sign, but you're not getting one. Except for one. The sign of Jonah, who was three days in the belly of the fish. Now, from their perspective, that looks like a failed prophet, somebody who's running away from God, who is fleeing and disobeying God, and as a result, as an act of judgment, he puts this guy into a fish. And Jesus is saying to them, I will give you a sign. They're looking for some sort of display of indomitable power. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you the same sign that Jonah gave you in which he lived in the belly of a fish on the bottom of the ocean for three days and yet by God's grace and his mercy lived to talk about it. The sign that Jesus is giving to you is that although you deserve to die, 
that although you deserve as a result of your sin to be buried in the earth and forgotten about, to be as good as gone as a man swallowed by a fish on the bottom of the ocean, if you trust in Christ, you are not as good as gone, you are not forgotten, and you can, though you are a sinner, live to talk about it. If you are here today and you want a sign there's the cross. It's the only sign I've got. It's the only sign that the Lord sees fit to give you. It's a sign of grace, but it's a two-edged sword. It's a sign of grace, but if you're of the sort that prefers not to hear God speaking to you as a father in the intimacy and the closeness and the nearness of that relationship, if you want to see an indomitable display of power, then just consider the fact that Jesus is God's son. And that he killed him as an act of judgment for your sin. And if he needed to go to those lengths in order to bring salvation to his people, what lengths do you think he's going to go to for individuals who insist upon his indomitable displays of power apart from the cross? Take his mercy. Take his fatherhood. Take him and become to him a son. Because you don't want him to speak to you any other way. Let the preaching of God's word be the father speaking to you in your life. Elijah is up on the mountain. There's an earthquake, there's a wind, and there's a fire. The Lord isn't in any of those things. The Lord is in a small, still whisper. And he wants to whisper to you, today, tomorrow, and always. Let him be your father. Let's bow for a word of prayer.